So we will be continuing through the Beatitudes. If you would like to, to turn through to Matthew uh, 5. Today's sermon will be around more 9 through 12, but we'll go through them again because it's been a few weeks um, of the, the Beatitudes that um, Jesus has given us. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It is good that there is warmth and joy among the people of God. Otherwise, I don't think we could have stood getting out in the cold this morning. I keep trying to convince my wife, though, that there's something just amazingly crisp, refreshing, life-giving, just that the cold air as you breathe it in your lungs. Um, she still doesn't believe me, but I keep trying. Well, before Christmas, we spent two weeks looking at the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. If you remember, the Beatitudes serve as sort of an introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, this most famous of Christ's sermons. Just as a way of reminder, I want to briefly look at what we have studied so far up to this point before we continue with the final two Beatitudes and then some transitionary words of Christ as we flow into a new section of the sermon. So just starting at the beginning of Matthew 5, as, as Brandon just read for us, to speak more intently to his disciples, Jesus withdrew into the hill country. He, with, he withdrew from the masses so that he could sit in a more intimate environment with his disciples. He began by ascribing the kind of attributes that would mark his disciples, that would mark anybody that had truly embraced the kingdom of heaven. He told them that even if this world didn't see it, even if it wasn't by the standard of the world, that they were blessed. They were in a happy position at the arrival of the kingdom of heaven and at the beginning of the reign of the Son of God on this earth. The poor in spirit were those who recognized their lowly estate before God. They understood that as a sinner, they had no claim before God. They deserve nothing but the wrath that they knew justice demanded. Anything other than judgment was purely mercy and grace. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who mourn were those who saw their sin, the sin of, of them, their own and the sin of their people, and they wept over the destruction that the sin brought. They wept because God is not honored by men, and instead he is hated and cursed. In Jesus' day in particular, 
the righteous people wept because they knew that the nation of Israel was not ready for the arrival of God on this earth. They knew that their people were hardened and would perish. Yet those who mourned would be comforted. The meek were those who knew their brokenness so well that they would not take offense when it was pointed out by others. They understood that God alone is truly wronged and offended by sin. And they realized that vengeance and justice are ultimately in God's hands. They're not for, it isn't for us. They shall inherit the earth. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness pursue holiness in their lives and in the lives of those around them. The things of God are as necessary for their existence, for their continuing, and as sweet to them as food and drink that sustains their bodies. They shall be satisfied. The merciful understand that just as we are sinners, so are others. They are quick to forgive because of the forgiveness that they have received in Christ. They have compassion on those who are broken and on those who are in need. And they shall receive mercy. The pure in heart possess an inner purity that stems from a single-minded pursuit of the righteousness of God in all things. They are not torn between two masters or in continual conflict about what really matters in this life. They shall see God. This morning, we are going to look at just what Jesus meant when he named the peacemakers and those persecuted for the sake of righteousness as blessed, as well as what our expectation can be in a world when we are marked by these attributes. And our focus will be on verses 9 through 12, the last few verses what Brandon had read for us. If you would join me in prayer before we continue on in our text. Father, we come to you needy. We don't pretend that we have anything of our own to stand on. We don't pretend that we are adequate, that we are up to the task, that we are in ourselves worthy of you. We come to you clinging to the righteousness of Christ in constant need of your grace. So, Father, we ask that you would move, that your spirit would be active among us and within us. You give me the right words and the right temperance in which to speak them. And you give us the right ears to be open to hear, hearts that are softened to listen. That we would be of the single-minded pursuit, that we want to be more like Christ. Whatever that means, whatever that costs us. Remove distraction. Remove whatever heaviness of heart may be on us. Let us see the wonder of the gospel and the food 
for our souls that it is. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Well, surely as, as they heard these words of Christ, it would have brought to mind the exhortation of David in Psalm 34, 14, where he wrote, to turn away from evil and do good, seek peace and pursue it. Well, what does it mean to be a peacemaker? It is to be always working toward restoration, to be working towards reconciliation between man and man, and more importantly, to be working towards reconciliation between man and God. It is a clear characteristic of the people of God to seek peace. It is a clear marker of those who are following after God because it is so much a part of who God is and what God has done. The Son of God, promised so long ago, was named the Prince of Peace. Of course, that should be fresh on our minds. Just last month, that was our memory verse. Let me remind you, Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God the Son himself is the ultimate peacemaker. The promise of his coming was the promise that God would bring men back to peace with himself. He gave his life to make peace between God and those he came to save. He died to restore man to God. And peace with God makes peace with man possible. Our pursuit of reconciliation is most made clearly manifest in our proclamation of the gospel. Because the message of the gospel is the message that God has secured peace for all who accept this radical call of Christ in their life. This radical call of the kingdom of heaven to those who will place their faith in Jesus, the king. Our hope in the gospel is that Jesus has made a way for us to be at peace with God. The poor in spirit will not miss the significance of this work. And those who mourn will find comfort here. I think a very natural question would be, how far ought the Christian go to pursue peace? Is the Christian to pursue peace at any cost? Or is there a framework or a clearer picture of what this should look like? And lest we run ahead of ourselves into folly, let us think back to what I just read from Isaiah. After naming the Messiah, among other things, the Prince of Peace, the prophet continued to speak of the increase of his reign, the increase of his authority, his sovereignty, his rule as the foundation 
of peace. Of a peace that would be established and upheld by justice and righteousness. A peace that would be accomplished by the zeal of the Lord of hosts. So peacemaking must then as have a framework if it's to be virtuous and righteous. So what does that structure look like? What, is, what makes it the real peace that we are pursuing? Well, clearly we can see that real peace, the kind of peace that the Christian is to pursue and to seek, cannot stem from the abandonment of truth or justice. Appeasement and capitulation to evil cannot bring peace. Even if for a time, it might bring an end to conflict. Any peace that rests on a lie or on corruption is a false peace. It isn't acceptable to the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. The peace of heaven comes from the victory of righteousness over evil. It flows out of the absolute authority of Christ over all things. And it is realized when sinful men are brought into submission to the rule of God. See, that is the peace that the Christian is to labor to bring about between man and man and between man and God. That is why our pursuit of peace is so tied to the gospel message that we preach. That is why we can accept personal injury, personal attack and insult in the pursuit of peace. Beloved, it isn't our authority that we offer as the path to peace. It's the rule and the authority of God. We know our weaknesses and failures. We know that on our own, we are no better off than the worst of sinners. But our hunger and our thirst have been satisfied in Christ. And we offer freely what we have been freely given. Jesus says that when we are truly peacemakers, we are true sons of God. We only know peace. We only desire peace in others because of the indwelling of God's spirit found in our adoption in Christ. Because in Christ, we are truly made sons of God. But it is also true that we are sons of God when we seek peace and pursue it, because in doing so, we reflect the character and the nature of God and are thus rightly associated with him. Of course, the contrast would be those who are not peacemakers. And then rather than being sons of God, they are sons of the devil. As John says in 1 John 3.10, says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is a, a worthy thing to get straight in our mind, that there is no one who is neutral. Either we are of God, we are sinners saved by grace, made into new creations by faith, united to Christ, 
or we are sons of the devil, sinners who are enemies and haters of God. There's no third option. There's no one who's just neutral towards God. After the fall of Adam in the garden, men shifted from being at peace with God and at peace with nature to being bringers of chaos and conflict. That is all that sinful men are capable of They're on their own is to bring conflict, to bring chaos, to try and bring other people into submission to their authority, to their will. The peace of the world is an illusion. It is a lie that is told in order to lure victims into the trap. Yes, the world often speaks of peace, yet it does not understand or want true peace. Well, in a world that is dominated by division and strife, the Christian is instead to pursue and to prefer unity and peace. And more than just preferring peace, we are to be actively working to overcome division and secure it. Even so, where men are by nature children of the devil and an enmity with God, peacemakers will not often be welcomed. For peace to stand, the natural desire for vengeance must be overcome. There must be something that both sides can agree on, both sides can submit to, to be at peace. Only a light of God's mercy and grace, knowing that he will make all things right, can a person truly forgive, can a person truly move on without still seeking immediate satisfaction for my feelings of injury or how I have been slighted. The fact is, beloved, the world enjoys its division. It enjoys its bitterness and its strife. The, the, the carnal man delights in quarrels and confrontation. If, if not in their own life, then certainly in the lives of those around them. Just look at how much attention is paid in the media and in politics over the fights between the sexes, the different classes or ethnic groups. We are a nation obsessed with every detail of the carnage of sin in the lives of others, even as we try to hide it in our own. Martin Luther said that those who are not Christians serve no other purpose than to create strife, contention, war, and the like. He said, there is naturally sticking to us the shameful, devilish filth that everyone likes to hear and tell the worst about his neighbor and is tickled if he sees a fault in someone else. Well, clearly people have not changed much in the 500 years since Luther. We make the sin and misery of others into humor and entertainment. Rather than celebrate the remnant of the image of God, we look instead at the perversion. When we should be lamenting and weeping over the effects of sin, we find enjoyment in the display of it. Well, Luther has more to offer us, and he said it like this. 
How is it then that we weave out of view the good and feast our eyes, sorry, that we leave out of view the good and feast our eyes upon what is impure? As if we took delight at looking only at a man's behind when God has covered the uncomely parts of the body, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 24, he has given more abundant honor to the part that lacked. And we are such a filthy set that we seek only after that which is dirty and stinks and wallow in it like hogs. Well, the wicked wield conflict and offense like a marksman wields his rifle. They strike with precision where there is weakness or where their efforts are likely to cause the most damage. And the masses revel in it. Think of how often we have witnessed local incidents be used and exploited to draw battle lines across the entire population. We have seen cities across this nation burn because bad men received a bad end. It seems a very easy thing to incite people towards hateful hatred, conflict, and violence. But why is it so easy? It's because wicked men don't want peace. They want to be God unto themselves. And they will fight against anybody who stands in their way. They unite with others only so long as they feel that they will be the better for it. And they quickly turn and devour one another when they feel they won't. Wicked men despise the true peace of the kingdom of heaven because they despise the reign of her king. The peacemaker, the child of God, does not celebrate sin in the world around us. They weep over it. And they seek even at great personal cost to reconcile what has been broken. The peacemaker is Christ in this world. And Christ, while hating sin and demanding righteousness, loved the sinner and gave himself to give him peace. Jesus continued, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The world around us so loves their sin that anyone, that anything who would seek to remove it from them will be met with hostility. Even if Christians were to remain silent about the horrors of sin that we see in the world around us, the simple fact that the Christian pursues righteousness in their own life will be seen as a threat to the status quo of those around them. Even if you never speak a word, by intentionally doing something in the pursuit of righteousness in your life, you call into question everybody who does not. The carnal man cannot tolerate any of his actions being called into question, his lifestyle called into question. By choosing to do more or less than they do, you call their actions into question. As one commentator put it, to live as subjects of the kingdom of heaven 
is to be set over against the rest of society, which does not share its values. Of course, how much greater of an offense is it when we do not simply rely on our actions to speak for us, but we give voice to the truths of God as well? Remember, Paul tells us that the mark of the depravity of man is that they desire not only the freedom to sin, but the approval of their sin as well. Read in Romans 1.32, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Opposition in the pursuit of righteousness and in the pursuit of peace is a normal, expected part of the life of the disciple of Christ. Everyone who would follow Christ must know that to do so, they will forfeit personal ease. They will likely forfeit material possessions, and they will likely forfeit honor in the eyes of godless men, the favor of the world, and many, even their very lives. Well, it would do a great deal to cut down the number of false converts in our churches if we told those who desired to escape the wrath of God and the life to come that we are promised the hatred and scorn of the world in this life, here and now. To be sure, the scorn and hatred of the world, the persecution that they can offer us is like nothing in comparison to the glory of Christ. Yet the carnal man will demand his reward now. He will not patiently endure the hatred of this world for the hope of what we have promised in the age to come. The carnal man will demand means of appeasing the world, of remaining a friend of the world. The reward for those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake is the same as the reward promised to those who are poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The Beatitudes begin and end with that promise. Those who have been transformed by the work of the power and of the spirit of God are part of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom belongs to them. They have salvation, they have hope, they have peace at the reign of the Son of God on this earth. Peter would echo these words in his first epistle in 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17. He said, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil." The blessing is not promised to just anybody who is persecuted, to just anybody who suffers. 
Because clearly, sinners are often persecuted by other sinners. The kingdom of heaven is for those who have suffered, not for wrongs that they have done, but those who suffer for their faithfulness and those who suffer because of whom they have followed. Jesus continued, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Well, it's worth to note that just in the flow of the text, up until this point, Jesus had been speaking about his disciples in the third person. But now after he finished those eight Beatitudes, he addressed his followers directly. Because they had committed to follow Jesus, because they had accepted his radical call to obedience, they will stand out as different from the world around them. If they truly follow him, they will be easily distinguishable and the world will curse them rather than bless them for that difference. Now, though it might sound similar on the surface, Jesus is not simply just restating here that the believers should expect the hatred of the world because of their pursuit of righteousness. There is a, a different, a unique element here. He is clearly telling them that to bear his name carries with it the added enmity of a world that also hated and cursed him. Read in John 15, starting in verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. We read something similar in Matthew 10, verses 16 through 22. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to court and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you will speak or what you are to say, for you are to say what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and the child will rise against parent and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. The world will not simply make it hard to be a Christian. It will at every point add insult to injury. On top of facing the prospect of physical and financial loss in the pursuit of righteousness, the believers can expect that their names will also be shamefully spit upon and slandered. The world will not try, only try to prevent you from acquiring righteousness, but will also curse you and make you to be the enemy of society. 
I once saw a video of Paul Washer where he described what persecution will look like for Christians in the years to come. He were to dispel the, the myth that we get to suffer as Christians in the way that we think of the martyrs that suffer before us as, as solid, stalwart warriors for God, respected by man for their courage and for their taking a stand. He said, no, that might be the way that believers in the future will look at it, but that will not be our experience in the here and now. He said, we will be labeled as bigots and hateful and backward people. We'll be accused of abusing our children because we seek to deny them the perversities of this age. We will be accused of being unloving and unchristlike because we do not celebrate and accept what God has forbidden in the name of love and peace. That we will not be celebrated for our faithfulness, but we will even be abandoned and scorned by some that we once believed to be our brothers. That is what persecution most often looks like for those who are faithful. Wicked men have always boasted as they persecute and even murder God's servants. They labor to name them as the worst of criminals. And they celebrate the destruction of God's people as though they had saved the land from a great and terrible evil. So were the prophets treated. So were the apostles. So were many in the early church. So were the reformers. And so are the faithful often treated today. Of course, if this sounds like something that would never happen in our country or in our lifetimes, and I can only assume that you are not paying much attention to the rapid shift in our culture in this age of tolerance and acceptance. I'm old enough to remember when it was still a scandal to have an openly gay character on a TV show. Now, New and greater depravities are daily being invented and being paraded in front of our eyes as though by constant repetition, a lie will somehow make it possible for a man to become pregnant or that it'll somehow make it possible that you can mutilate healthy bottle bodies and turn them into some kind of grotesque mockery of what God has created, of God's good design. You'd be very hard-pressed in this day to find anything in our media that does not feature and celebrate all forms of sexual sins, these same sexual sins that God consistently calls an abomination. It wasn't that long ago, just think back to remember, it wasn't that long ago that if you said sex outside of the bonds of marriage between one man and one woman, anything outside of that was wrong, you were just viewed as conservative, traditional, maybe a little bit, you know, out of touch with the times, but you were not something to be detested. Now, if you make such a claim, you'll be labeled as an intolerant bigot, a science denier, a fool to deny even just to refuse to celebrate any kind and every sort of lifestyle that others embrace 
is looked upon as the worst kind of hate. And to fail to recognize and celebrate delusion and perversity is tantamount to murder. To believe in the standard of God and to pursue his standard in our lives and desire it to be displayed in the world around us places Christ's followers as the lowest scum in our ever more liberating society. The, the true Christian, and by that I am not talking about the fool or the pervert that claims the name of Christ but does n- denies his power, the true Christian who actually follows Christ and is being day by day conformed into his image is the greatest threat to the wicked men that are actively steering this nation to destruction. And it was also true in the days of the disciples of Jesus in the first century that they were the greatest threat to the leaders in Jewish society and then later on to the Roman Empire. So, beloved, we should not be surprised when the world is against us. Even so, we must ensure that when we suffer, that we do so as Christians and not as pagans. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 4, 12 through 16, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed but let him glorify God in that name. But it's true that in a fallen world, all men suffer, though not to the same degree and not for the same reasons. We all know people who have shipwrecked their lives because of their sin. And we all know people who have lost everything because of forces outside of their control. It is one thing to suffer because we live in a fallen world. It simply comes with the territory. It is one thing to suffer because you did what was right and men don't like it. You can even know then that you are blessed, that you have things to look forward to, rewards to look forward to when Christ comes again in power. Well, beloved, it is quite another thing as Peter warns, to suffer as an evildoer. We all know the awful feeling of reaping just consequence for our actions. There is no blessing in that pit. There is no comfort. The only thing that you can do is run to Christ in repentance and hope anew in the gospel and the promise of life beyond the suffering that we have made for ourselves. There is no shame in suffering. 
Yet when suffering comes, let it be because you are like Christ. Don't give in to the world and its lies. Well, the disciples listening to Jesus preach had a long line of faithful examples of those servants of God who endured much at the hands of evil men because of their faithfulness to God. In comparing the suffering of his disciples to that of the prophets, Jesus was making a very bold Christological claim. As he said, and you will go out and suffer for my name and you will be blessed. He put himself on par with God as the prophets went out in the name of Yahweh and were persecuted for speaking the words of God and their faithfulness to God. He told his disciples whom he knew without fail would suffer in this life that they were not alone. They had but to look back at the testimony of all who had come before them to see that suffering for righteousness is normal to those who are faithful to God. Remember the parable of the landowner in the vineyard, Matthew 21, verses 33 through 41, where Jesus said, hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed one, and stoned another. And he sent out other servants, more than the first. And they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. The text makes clear that the chief priests and the Pharisees understood their place in that parable. They stood in a long line of men who would not accept a challenge to their position or their authority. God had sent his servants to them with words of judgment, yet also with words of hope. Yet time and again, they would not repent So the hope of peace was lost as they led the nation to destruction. Just as in the parable of the vineyard, judgment was coming for Israel. Even with this warning and the constant call to repent, to turn to God, the hardening and the condemnation was near at hand. We have to remind ourselves and be able to see, just to open eyes. It's obvious that weaved throughout this entire gospel is the warning of judgment on the nation. There's the warning of the coming destruction, the coming wrath of God, as well as the promise of peace and salvation to those who believe. Such stark, contrasting messages. Do you embrace the kingdom or do you war against it? 
Those who believed found peace with God. Yet in finding peace with God, they found conflict with those who rejected God, rejected his son, who rejected the peace that he offered. And how could it be any other way? Peace with God means that we will have enmity with this world. Our pursuit of peace will produce fruit. It will produce fruit as the gospel conquers enemy after enemy. Remember, the gospel is powerful to go out, go out and the gates of hell cannot stand against the gospel of our Lord, the message of our King. There will be fruits. Even so, the pursuit of peace will bring about our persecution. Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it this way, Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ. And it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called on to suffer. In fact, it is a joy and a token of his grace. To be Christ's disciple is to seek to be made like him in all things. The lives of everyone who believes in Christ are defined by our being continually, day after day, conformed into the image of Christ. That is what it means to be the disciple. We strive to conform our thoughts to his thoughts, our wills to his will, our actions to his actions. The student desires to be like the master. Well, as I neared the end of the sermon... I want to ask you something that I want you to consider in your life. How comfortable are worldly people with the way that you live your lives? How comfortable are the ungodly people with the way you live your life? Yes, we are told to be at peace with all men as far as it is up to us that we should strive to live such honorable lives that even our enemies are forced to recognize our good works and give honor to God. Yet Jesus makes perfectly clear that the world will not easily abide his disciples. So how comfortable are God-hating sinners with your life and your testimony? It is one thing for a carnal man to respect a Christian, to appreciate their integrity or their devotion. It is quite another for them to be able to spend much time around them, to be able to be close with them and not be torn apart as their sinfulness is exposed by the righteousness of Christ. Our loving kindness towards even those who will be our enemies is an attractive quality that will draw some men to us. Yet the radical lifestyle of being conformed to Christ will ultimately be intolerable to this world. Christ is, and he will be, offensive to everybody who hates God. Can those who hate our master be close to us and not also hate us? 
if they can, then we must not reflect much of the life of our master. Consider the words of Jesus and remember that friendship with the world is enmity with God. If we live to be comfortable with the worldly things and worldly people, how do we ever expect that we'll be useful in winning any for Christ? Remember, salvation is a supernatural work of God. We do not make sinners into Christians because we become like them. God makes sinners into believers because they see Christ, and by the grace of God, they desire him rather than what this world has to offer. So will the ungodly world, will they see Christ in us? Are we becoming like our master? Are we truly disciples of Christ? Or are we deceiving ourselves? Either as sons of God, we are Christ in this world, or as sons of the devil, we mock and curse his name and his sacrifice. Do not serve Christ in name alone, which is no service at all, but strive in every moment to be more like him. If the greatest desire of a disciple is to be just like his master, then the disciples of Jesus are and will be the happiest and most hopeful of all disciples because God has promised us that he will make us like his son. Even in persecution, we can have joy because we know in the sufferings, we are completing the sufferings of Christ and we are being made like our Savior, being made like our Master. We are achieving, even in suffering, the goal of our lives to be like Christ and to be more pleasing to God. When we face persecution because the unbelieving world sees Christ in us, rejoice, for we have found peace with God. Father, these are heavy words. It is not pleasant to think about suffering that will come. It is not pleasant to think about the words of our Savior who has promised that the world will hate us. But Father, give us the faithfulness to embrace whatever the world does to us because of Christ. To be able to trust that even in that suffering, in that persecution, we are blessed. And to know that your gospel is powerful. That even as we suffer, you will use the testimony of your faithful to make much of your son and to draw others into faith. The world is powerless to stop us. The world is powerless to stop your kingdom. Father, make us faithful. Make us pleasing to you. 
for our good and for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. We come now once again to the Lord's table. We turn our attention now to the means by which our peace with God has been secured. We take to ourselves once again the tangible reminder of the cost of the peace that we have with God, the broken body and poured out blood of our King. When you think of the cost of discipleship, think of the cost of our salvation. In light of what Christ has done for us, enduring for us all that we deserved, is it too much that we should be willing to suffer the reviling and persecution of this world for the few short years that we are on this earth? If you are a child of God, then this table is for you. If you seek peace and pursue it, then this remembrance, this celebration is for the building up of your faith. It is for the increasing of your joy and your confidence. Yet if you are a pretender and you would instead choose the false peace of this world, then I warn you that you must not come and eat. This is for God's people. If you know that that doesn't include you, then wait. Ask that God would show you why so many people around the world today and in thousands of years on this earth have been willing to suffer so much for the peace of Christ that they had within them. So for all who were in Christ, I invite you to come. In just a few moments, we will partake together. Read in Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 22. And as they were eating, he, Jesus, took the bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them. And he said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. Just as we remember the cost of our peace with God, we look forward with eager anticipation of the fulfillment of our hope and our joy when we will drink of this cup with our Savior in his presence forever in the fullness of his kingdom. Father, we thank you for your sacrificing your son. We thank you for the wonder of the gospel. We thank you for the reminders that you give us to keep us focused on what is real, Keep us focused on the gospel. May these means of grace that you have given us never become old, never become too familiar, but always be new and fresh. Always be restorative to our souls.
Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.